we've kind of come to the end of the summer here, and so I want to think back on the summer for just a moment with a little straw poll of show of hands. Who here went to a theme park this summer? Did anybody get, get to want to ride some roller coasters? A few of us. Not a lot. I didn't. Um, but I hope that uh, you can at least imagine a time where maybe you went to a theme park, where you were on the roller coaster rides. And, you know, when I go, sometimes what I'll do is I'll start with a, kind of a warm-up ride. I'm not going to go to the biggest one right away. I don't want to lose my cookies that early in the day, so to speak. And so let's just kind of slowly get worked into things and how this is going. But my eyes are set on the big one, right? As soon, usually the way these places are laid out, you walk in and you can see the enormous one that you are really excited for, Right? You, you've looked it up, you know how fast it goes zero to 60, you know how tall it is, you know how steep the drop-off is, you know the heart failure that's promised from it, you know all of that. And you, you've probably thought about the different aspects of that roller coaster. The beginning where you're, you're slowly lurching up, wondering what's to come. The major cliff drop right at the beginning, right? The speedy incline, the curves, the, the little plateau at the top where you sort of catch your breath before the next round comes at you. You can, you can imagine this little bit right here. And, and then you finally, you finish the ride, you come to the conclusion. Everybody's catching their breath. The, the, the brakes are starting to clamp and you hear the hissing from those. And you step off the ride and you begin to think about how quickly you can get back in line to do it again. Right? That, that's kind of the, the roller coaster picture there. And this morning's sermon is titled, The Roller Coaster of Faith. Because sometimes living by faith can feel like a roller coaster. And there are parts where you're at the beginning, you're slowly moving up the hill, and things feel a little bit mundane. I want to walk by faith in this time right here. And there's other parts that it feels like you just went off a cliff and you're holding on for dear life to that harness. You got nothing to hang on to, and your feet are dangling, and you really hope that the scientists knew what they were doing when they built that thing, and it's going to hold you up. There's parts where you're on a speedy incline, there's parts where you're whipping around the curves. Maybe you hit a plateau where you rest for a bit. And then the life of faith concludes at some point where the ride ends and you step off into an eternal destiny as you're watching others step on to the ride as well. See, the life of faith can be a bit like a roller coaster with different seasons and, and different phases. And, and all throughout Genesis 15, what we see is Abram's life of faith and different snapshots into different elements of this life of faith. And, no, Abram isn't perfect, but he is faith-filled. We see him navigate different parts of life through the lens of faith. And then what we'll see this morning is four aspects of the life of faith, the roller coaster of faith, you might say. And what we'll plan to do is we'll plan to move through the first three somewhat quickly and then drill down a little bit on the fourth and final aspect of faith there. All right, so, so let's start with the first one here. The first point, faith dreams big. Faith dreams big. Verses one through three, Genesis 15. Take a look uh, back at your copy of God's word with me, please. Here's what we read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. At the beginning, we're not told why Abram might be afraid. Right? God says, Abram, don't be afraid, but I'll be your shield. 
But what we do know is that God affirms his plan to continue blessing him. And up to this point, here's what we also know about Abram. Genesis 13, Abram has acquired great wealth. Genesis 14, saw last week, Abram has conquered many nations. So from an earthly standpoint, things would seem to be looking pretty good for Abram. He's been successful in war, maybe professionally you might say, and financially he's doing really well. This miraculous and probable victory. He's sort of on top of the hill from a worldly standpoint, but his focus is elsewhere. His focus is on the, the blessing of offspring that God has promised. He said, God, you've promised this thing, and even though things look pretty good for me right now, my eyes are more clearly focused on what you've promised, not just his life being comfortable at the moment. It's, it's as if he says, things are going great. I've made it to the theme park. But he's not merely happy to be at the theme park where things are going well. He's got his eyes on something bigger and better, that major roller coaster that you've been hoping to get to. That's kind of where he's at in this picture, right? And right at the beginning of Genesis 15, there's, I think, an important lesson for us to consider, get applicational and personal almost right from the get-go, to ask this, does your faith cause you to dream bigger about the promises of God than having a comfortable life right now where you're at? Biblical faith always pushes us to see a bigger picture. Pastor Ian Duguid has, has written on this extensively, and here's one of the things that he says. He says, will you be satisfied simply to prosper materially, to have a happy family and live in reasonable comfort? Or do you hunger and thirst after the issues that are on God's heart? Do you deeply desire to see God's kingdom of righteousness advancing in and through you? I wonder if you even think about that. What does it look like for God's kingdom of righteousness to advance in your life? I think it's, it's easy for us to sort of live on a sort of spiritual autopilot at times. Right? It's not that I'm totally checked out, but I'm not totally checked in either. Right? I'm just kind of trying to make sure things are comfortable, all the boxes are checked, there's no major crises right now. But what would it look like to, to dream bigger for your life than to merely be on spiritual autopilot, but to actively be focused on, on killing sin, on restraining your tongue, on walking by the Spirit every moment of every day? Right? Faith in God raises our eyes above the comfort of where things are at right now towards a more specific focus on the promises of God being lived out in my life. But not only the kingdom of God's righteousness advancing in me, but also through me. Right? Think about it this way. Maybe you've got people in your life that you're thinking about that don't know Jesus yet. You're praying for them. Pastor Lynn just led us in a prayer there. Is the goal, hey, I'm looking for a chance this week where I can subtly drop a hint that I go to church. Well, that's a good thing to do, but faith in the promises of God that he is going to save sinners means that we can raise our eyes and not merely try to say, oh yeah, I go to church, but actively proclaim who Jesus is. Say, have you considered your eternal destiny? Would you come to this Bible study with me? Would you come to church with me? Right? It raises our eyes to something bigger and better. Or, or think about family discipleship perhaps in this way. Right? Are we content with merely saying a prayer before meals, getting to church a couple times a month, and calling that good? 
Now, those are things we ought to do, right? Not to say don't do those things, but what would it look like to raise our eyes, to look for a bigger vision of the gospel flowing through you to your family, dads? We're gonna regularly open God's word over dinner and read it with your kids and read it with your wife and talk about it with them. Have an intentional plan. You've got an intentional plan for retirement, or you've got an intentional plan for how you're gonna get on the vacation you want somewhere in the next couple of years. Are we being intentional and dreaming bigger than merely getting the kids to the next soccer practice or musical event or whatever? Now, to be sure, in, in this kind of thinking, there is a danger of a spiritual treadmill, right? Where it's do more, do more, do more, do more, as if our spirituality is determined by all the things we do for God. There's a danger there. But I do think the bigger danger for us, the bigger danger is that we're content with a very comfortable Christianity where we're not dreaming bigger on the promises of God and we're just seeing comfort in front of us as kind of the main thing that dictates our life. So right at the beginning, we see Abram's faith causing him to dream bigger about his life than merely being comfortable at the moment. But the second thing that we'll see, and this is the second point about the life of faith as a roller coaster, is that faith believes God. Faith believes God. Look back at Genesis 15 here in verse four. Here's what it says. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir, this Eliezer of Damascus. Abram, your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That that last verse, verse six there, is a major, major verse in the storyline of Scripture. If you haven't underlined that yet in your Bible, I would encourage you to do that, or circle it, or highlight it, or mark it up in some way. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now notice this. Nothing in Abram's external circumstances has changed here. Nothing's changed yet, and yet Abram believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. And what God does here is he doubles down on this promise of offspring, of an heir to come. Look back at verse 4. God says, your very own son. Abram, don't be confused. I'm doubling down. Yes, it will come from you, Abram. And then verse 5, he invites Abram to number the stars, I know I was out the, the other night, we had a little fire pit out, and I was, I was looking up, and I was just struck by the number of stars on a clear night. And, you know, we know we can't even see 1% of them. It's unbelievable how many are there. And, and God says, no, 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 Abram, don't lose sight. Yes, it will be directly from you, and yes, yes your offspring will be innumerable. God doubles down on his promise. And then comes verse 6, this foundational passage that Abram chose to believe God, to take him at his word, And without doing any deeds, he merely believes, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a foundational passage for a key Christian doctrine that we call justification by faith alone. This was one of the major doctrines that was recovered some 500 years ago with the Protestant Reformation. And I know that first word is pretty big and can be confusing. What what exactly does that mean? Here's justification, declared righteous. If you're taking notes, that's a good thing to write down. Justification means declared righteous. It carries the idea of a legal term. You're in a court of law. Your case is brought before the judge, and he says you are declared righteous. 
Now, that's important to note. It's not merely being declared not guilty. That would be good to be declared not guilty, but this goes further. It says declared righteous. And the question, of course, is, well, where does this righteousness, this goodness come from? Because I was sort of on trial, per se. I can be be declared not guilty, but how can I be declared righteous? That's the second part, justification by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ, that his righteousness is given to me. And I can be declared righteous. Think about it this way. It's like there's a physics test. Students, have we had a physics test yet? Anybody had one? That'd be a rough start for the year if a teacher's already giving a physics test in the third week. But, but it's like this. You study and you, you fail the test. And you've got a friend who aces the test. They get a 100. You go to, to turn the thing in, and instead of your failed test, your failing grade, somebody crosses your name out, and the, the punishment, the remediation, the extra work you have to do, Jesus takes your failing grade. He aced the test. He crosses out his name, writes your name on it, you turn it in. Perfect test. Perfect life. Perfect righteousness. Justification by faith alone. You are declared righteous by Jesus' perfect life, his perfect physics test per se, not your own. And we see this taught all over the Bible, right? Genesis 15, 6 is kind of the foundational part of it, but we could go to Galatians 3 or to James 2 or any number of passages, but the Bible is abundantly clear here. Well, let me take you back to Romans 4 to see one of these uh, obvious passages that is tying into what Abram has just been taught or we've seen in his life. Romans 4, commenting on Genesis 15. His faith, Abram's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, saying this wasn't just how things worked for Abram. This was to instruct us, this is how you can be saved. This is how you can know God. Based on Jesus' perfect life, you can be justified, declared righteous before God by faith alone. So in Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus saying to someone, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Not on the basis of the good stuff you did, not on the basis of the bad stuff you did. No, your faith has saved you, have been justified by faith alone. Or Acts 16.31, we hear a message being preached and here's the message, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be justified by your faith in him. Or Romans 10, Paul would write, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be declared righteous by faith alone. And this is a fundamental, a fundamental difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics. It's a major distinction here, a difference between how can you know God, how can you be right with God, how can you have a sure eternity in heaven with God. Here's what the the Catholic Church's catechism says. Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to eternal life, to attain eternal life. Do you see that key difference there? Yes, the Holy Spirit helps, but we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life. And we say from the Bible, very clearly, no, you can't. You can't merit enough grace for yourself. 
It's only by faith, justification, by faith alone. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's not on the basis, like I said, of your good works, of your baptism, of your parents raising you in the church, of your giving, faith alone. And friends, here's a key thing to recognize. Both of these views cannot be right. It can't be holy by faith and also based on your own merits and your works. It's got to be one or the other. They are mutually exclusive claims. And so this morning, I would just ask you, have you believed that you can be declared righteous before God by faith alone? Based on Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross to pay for your sins, and his resurrection to conquer death and sin and hell and Satan. Have you believed that? Because you can this morning. And I don't mean to ask, what does your church believe? You can go to this church and believe something besides what this church believes. And you could go to the Catholic church and believe something that they believe or any other church. But what do you believe? If you haven't believed in Jesus' finished work on the cross to declare you righteous and right with God, do it this morning. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, and he will. Faith believes God. That's the second point. If you've got questions about that point, I would love to talk to you afterwards today. I would love to. Here's the third point this morning. Faith seeks understanding. Faith seeks seeks understanding. Now, recall the promise made to Abram. His external circumstances have not yet changed. He chooses to believe God, although his circumstances haven't changed yet, right? Here's where we pick up in verse seven. Look back at Genesis 15 with me. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Do you see what he says there? He says, God, I see what you say, and I believe you, but my present circumstances don't quite line up. Do you look at the sermon series. He says, I'm living in the gap. How am I supposed to know? Because I know you say this, and I'm believing you, but how can I know? There's a phrase that Christians have used throughout the centuries. It's this, faith while seeking understanding. I'm gonna exhibit faith. I'm gonna put forth faith. I'm gonna trust God. I'm gonna believe God and also seek understanding as to how he's working, to understand what's being said. And, and there's this popular trope in our culture, a false teaching you see all over the place, that somehow Christianity is anti-reason or anti-science or anti-intellectual or, or some such nonsense, right? That is just simply not something you find in the Bible anywhere. You don't find it there. If you'd like to do a little digging on how Christianity led to the rise of modern science, it was actually Christianity that led to the modern scientific method flourishing. Look up this book called The Soul of Science. It's written by Nancy Piercy. It's probably uh, 25 years old, but it is phenomenal. Especially the first two chapters are amazing. The Soul of Science, Nancy Piercy. But, but there's a couple of ditches that we could miss or fall into here on faith-seeking understanding. The first one is this. You can think that as a Christian, what it means to have faith is that you check your brain at the door. That's the first ditch. Don't do that. If we're back on the, the roller coaster analogy, it's like getting on the roller coaster before they test the thing to make sure it's safe. You should not do that. 
And as a Christian, you should not check your brain at the door and not engage intellectually on the claims of Christ and on what the Bible says. Maybe you've heard somebody say, well, you just need more faith in this situation. Well, maybe you do need more faith. That's very possible. But it's also critical that we don't leave our brain out of the mix. It's important that you investigate the claims of Christianity to say, if I'm going to give my entire life to this, that if I'm going to sing, it is well with my soul, that it's yet not I, but Christ in me, I'm going to sing, Christ is my hope in life and death, then you'd better be pretty darn sure that Jesus is who he said he was, and he did all the things he said he did, and that he really lived a perfect life, and that he really died, and that he really rose again for you. You'd better be pretty sure of that. And that's why Christianity is different than any other religion in the world, that it actually invites that sort of investigation. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Go look it up. So don't make the mistake. Don't fall into the ditch of checking your brain at the door. But there's a second ditch to avoid. Don't also check your faith at the door and say, well, I'm, I'm a scientist. I believe in reason. I'm a philosopher. And because I'm an intellectual, I can't have faith. That's like saying, I won't get on the roller coaster until I've personally examined every single screw, every single bolt, every single washer, and I'm not going to take a step of faith, I'm not going to get on this roller coaster until I personally have looked at every single one of those. That's not how we operate in life, guys. Nobody lives that way. You've got to take a step of faith at some point. It's almost like saying, I won't believe in the planet Jupiter until we land on it and bring back samples. Well, you can't land on Jupiter. Well, I understand that. There are certain claims that are beyond that tangible investigation in that way to actually land on it. And so we say we engage our brain, see what the best evidence is. It supports the truth of Christianity. And on the basis of that great evidence, then I take a step of faith and follow Jesus, not knowing what it's going to mean because I can trust him. And and students, I I wanna talk specifically to you here, so listen up for just a second. It is critical that you begin right now learning to engage your brain, to think on theology, and pursue Jesus, to build a strong foundation. I know what the Bible says. I know why I believe it. I know it's trustworthy. You've got to get started on that now. And dads, I wanna challenge you on this too. Your kids know They know that you'll engage your brain on cars. They know that you'll engage your brain on the stock market. They know that you'll engage your brain on fantasy football. Do they know that you're engaging your brain in studying who Jesus is and what he said? Are you modeling that for them too? Because biblical faith is always seeking understanding. And from the very beginning of the Bible, God's people have asked, how can I know? Yes, I'm believing you, God, says Abram. But how can I know? I want you to know that if you're newer here at Parkside, we welcome your questions about the Bible, about faith, about theology, whatever they may be. And we welcome them because God welcomes them. If you've got those questions, I'd love to get together this week and talk about those. Be a great conversation. I hope we can talk after. That's the third point. Faith seeks understanding. It says, how can I know? Here's the fourth and final point. I told you I'd I'd move somewhat quickly through the first three so I could linger here on the fourth a bit. Faith clings to the anchor. Faith clings to the anchor. We're not gonna read all of verses nine through 21, but let's pick up in verse 12 of Genesis 15. Here's what it says. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. Boy, isn't that a great phrase to hear from God? Say, how can I know? He says, know for certain. Here's how you can know. We keep reading. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, I don't know how you hear that, but the first time I, well, not the first time I read that, that wouldn't be true. When I was beginning my preparation for this sermon, when I went back and reread that, and he says, know for certain, I'm expecting something really good to come. And he says, know for certain, your offspring will be sojourners as a land, they'll be servants there and afflicted for 400 years. There's the good news, Abram. Like, does that not feel like a, a, a sharp turn on the roller coaster? That is not what I thought was coming. I feel a little whiplashed right now. It's the promise that God gives him. He says, yes, you're gonna suffer for a long time, 400 years. There will be generations that live, have kids, and die, and only see suffering. But I'm still gonna be God, and I'll still be in charge, and I'll still be working my purposes, even though you don't see it, or they don't see it in their lifetime. And I will deliver you. It's a pathway that you see in a foundation here throughout all the Bible that suffering comes before glory. The cross precedes the crown over and over and over. Abram's promise that he'll die in an old age. And, and then there's that bit about his offspring taking the land because the sin of the Amorites isn't complete yet. What in the world does that even mean? Here's what it means. God is being patient with the Amorites. He's giving them time to turn and repent come back to him. And he says, eventually my patience will run out and I will send your offspring, Abram, and I will judge them because they have not repented of their sin. Time my patience will run out, but I'm going to be exceedingly patient with them. And then right after these sets of promises comes the big news, the big reveal, where God says, this Abram, this is the guarantee. This is how you can know. He intervenes with a special provision, a special promise, what's called a covenant. If you're taking notes this morning, that word covenant is a key one to write down. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter six says this particular covenant, this particular provision is what will be an anchor for your soul. That's why this point is called faith clings to the anchor because of what Hebrews 6 says about it. And we'll come back to that in, in a few minutes here. But the term covenant, really important, shows up 82 times in just the first five books of the Bible. It's a major theme of the biblical storyline. And there's only five explicit covenants in the Bible. One made to Noah, then one to Abraham as the second, then to Moses, to David, and then the new covenant that Jesus brings. So they don't come around real frequently, so when they do come around, you'd better pay close attention. Right? These are like the, the backbone of the sto biblical storyline. So as you're reading the Old Testament, you're often saying, which covenant am I near here? That helps me understand what's going on. And what Genesis 15 describes, this sort of bizarre section to us modern readers, is how the ancient Near Eastern people would affirm how they would ratify, how they would sign a covenant. 
So let me take a second to explain what this looks like because it's, it's critical to get the backstory before it can make sense for us today. When we're signing a contract or a covenant, we sign our name, or maybe you get that thing sent on DocuSign, you just tap the button and then click next and don't read all the fine print and it jumps down to the next part where you sign. And you just sort of go, go about things in that way to say, yes, I agree to the terms. That's basically what we're saying, right? But in the ancient Near East, they had a far more robust system that's in part described here. So what, what would happen is they would bring out these animals and they'd slaughter the animals. And then they'd cut them in half and half the animal goes over here and half the animal goes over here. And it's a bloody mess. It's not a pretty sight. You've got flesh everywhere. It stinks. You can't not see what's going on. You can't just tap next and move on to eating your peanut butter and jelly is what I'm saying. Like you've got blood spilled out everywhere. There's flesh everywhere. It's a major thing to say, you've got to pay attention to what's going on here. You can't miss the significance. And as they set them aside, there becomes an aisle way through the middle. And those uh, ratifying, signing the covenant, they will walk through the aisle. And in essence, what they're saying is, if I break the terms of the covenant, then what just happened to these animals will, be, will happen to me. Whoa. Don't enter into covenants real lightly and quickly here. Right? Pay attention to that. But that's how these covenants work. That's why they say a covenant is a much bigger deal than merely a promise. Because there's a solemn oath and an obligation that comes upon it. That is to say, in the, you know, in the DocuSign, you don't really read the fine print. You kind of skim over that, but you can't skim over the details of this. All right, so, so that's what's going to happen here, and it's a major deal. Let's pick up and read in Genesis 15 what happens. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I will give this land from the, river of Euphrates, uh, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. There's a, a flaming pot, sorry, a fire pot and a flaming torch. Got backwards on that. What does that mean? That's actually the same Hebrew word as what is used to describe the presence of God when he comes down on Mount Sinai and gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. It's the same Hebrew word as the Israelites are being led out of Egypt, that the flaming cloud and the pillar lead them out and guide them. It's saying the presence of God is here. And who is it? Who is it that walks through to ratify the covenant? It's only God. The fire pot, the flaming torch they go through. Abram's in a deep sleep. This is unprecedented. See, in the ancient Near East, there's one of two things that would happen. One, only the lesser person, the servant, might walk through. Sometimes both would walk through, but never would only the greater walk through. The king, he's never the one that goes through alone. So for a little bit here, you see this is very standard ancient Near Eastern practice. And then there's a striking turn that says, Wait a second, we've never, ever seen anything like that. God is making a unilateral covenant, a unconditional covenant with Abram. And what he says, he says, I'll take on the curses of the covenant if I don't do my part. And Abram, if you don't do your part, do you know what I'm going to do? I'll also take on the curses for you. Whoa. Think about that. 
Just if I don't hold up my end, I'll take on the curses. And Abram, if you don't hold up your end, I'll still intervene and take the curse for you. It's been said that in that moment, God pronounced a death sentence on his son, Jesus. So that what is talked about in a foundational form here would be prophesied in Isaiah 53 and verse eight. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. I will be cut off. I will take on the curses for your sins. And in the gospel accounts, you think Mark 15, darkness comes over the whole land just as darkness came over this land. And the son was cut off from the father, not because he didn't keep up his end of the deal, but because his people sinned. You see, this covenant is sheer grace and it's costly grace. That's nothing you're bringing to the table here. He's saying, your salvation, Abram, is not a cooperative effort. It's not a 50-50 deal. It's not a 75-25. It's not a 90-10. I'm going to intervene and it is all of grace. And I'm going to enter in and I'm going to save you. And the law given to Moses, is it doesn't come till hundreds of years later. It says, I will save you and then instruct you in the way to go. Not you get your act together, start figuring it out, and then I'll decide you're worth being on my team. You don't see that at all. Friends, grace always comes before law. And there is no more vivid picture in my mind in the whole Old Testament of the gospel than right here in Genesis 15. There's a penalty for not keeping the covenant. And God says, I will substitute myself and atone for your sins. It's an absolutely foundational Christian doctrine. We call it penal substitutionary atonement. Huge words, put them up on the screen here. Penal substitutionary atonement. Really simple. There's a penalty, so God will substitute himself for us. You didn't keep up your end of the covenant, so I will substitute myself for you to atone for your sins. In our place, condemned, he stood. That's how the hymn would say it. There's a penalty. He substituted himself to atone for our sins. It's a radical covenant. You, you can miss it if you just kind of read through quickly and you're, you're looking for the other stuff in Genesis, but it's a critical section that we understand. And a minute ago, I told you that Hebrews 6 said that this covenant is the anchor for your soul. So now it's appropriate, understanding the covenant a little bit more. We go back to Hebrews 6, we read it and say, okay, how is this covenant exactly going to anchor my soul? When I feel like my life goes off the cliff of that roller coaster, and it's a straight downhill plummet, how do I hold on to the harness? How exactly does that happen? Enter Hebrews 6 on the screen, take a look. I'm going to start in verse, uh, I think this is verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, catch this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast 
anger of the soul. Friends, are you fleeing, looking for refuge in this life? Where is the refuge? I'm running and looking, and I don't see refuge anywhere. Look here. He says, do you need encouragement? Not some measly, weak, mild encouragement, but real, strong, sustain your soul encouragement. Look here. Do you want to see that God's purpose is unchanging and there's actually a real anchor for your soul when the tempest swirls and the storm is raging so you can say, it is well with my soul? Look here, he says. Look at this covenant. So you hear it and you say, how? How, Justin? How do I actually take what is a, an anchor for the soul and how do I get it deep down in my soul, deeper than the circumstances around me right now? How does that happen? Let me suggest two fairly simple ways. First one is this. You go to God like Abram and say, God, how can I know? You admit that you don't know. God, I I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And you realize that he can handle what's in the depths of your heart. You don't have to clean it up, pray a prayer that you think sounds spiritual, and go to him and say, God, how can I know? I don't see, it's not making sense right now. Because notice, when Abram says, God, how can I know? Does God get mad at him for asking? No, he says, Abram, I see that you're trying to live by faith and you're struggling and you're not sure. Let me tell you how you can know. Reminds me in Mark 9 of the man whose son is being healed of demon possession. He says, Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. We go to God, we say, God, I'm trying to believe and I'm struggling to have faith, show me how I can know. And then the second thing you do, you focus on the gospel that's first portrayed here in Genesis 15, carried out some thousands of years later, recognizing that as God promised to take the penalty for me in Genesis 15, as he promised that Jesus truly did, he did fulfill that. He did take the curse that was coming to me. And so what I can say is I may not know why this is happening right now. I might get the answer one day and I might not get the answer one day. I don't know. But one thing I can rule out, this is not happening because God has forgot about me. It's not happening because God doesn't love me. Because he loved me enough to send his son to the cross to be torn apart like those animals were torn apart as a demonstration of his love for me so that I can always say, I know you're with me. I know you care. Friends, he knows the physical suffering. He knows the relational suffering more deeply than any of us ever can. And when you're experiencing immense, deep, dark suffering, it feels like nobody knows. How could anyone get this? And by looking at the gospel, now Jesus was torn apart for you, you could say, there's an anchor for my soul. Someone actually does understand. He was forsaken by God so that you would never be forsaken by God. Say, here's an anchor that can sustain my soul. So what it means then is this life may get better or it might get worse, but your eternal state is secure, not on the basis of my up and down life, but on the basis of Jesus' perfect life. This is the deep encouragement that Hebrews 6 talked about. It's the only truth capable of anchoring your soul. 
And so if we're gonna go back to the roller coaster analogy and, and finish here, the life of faith clings to the harness of the gospel at every turn, at every flip, at every drop off, saying, I may be sick to my stomach right now, and I may not know what's coming next, but I'll always cling to this harness because nothing else is secure. There's nothing else worth clinging to except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.